Should we study the Bible? Yes. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is our text, where we find our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, let's put in at verse 25. The topic, Paul suggested that the believers remain in whatever marital situation they were called, but what did that mean to those who were engaged? The title of our message, to betroth or not to betroth? That is the question. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we approach the text this morning, as always, we humble ourselves before you and ask for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, that we might understand the text in its original context and also in the context of our own lives. Speak to us, minister to us, bless us, encourage us, exhort us, strengthen us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. The longest engagement on record between Octavio Guillen and Adriana or Adriana Martinez They were engaged in 1902 when they were both 15. They didn't get married until 67 years later in 1969 at age 82. Uh, I wish I could give you more information. There's almost no other information to be found, but I think it's a trustworthy fact, not just because it appears all over the internet, but because it's in the Guinness Book of Records. And really, if you can't trust Guinness, who can you trust? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty high standard. They, they, do, they do their research. Now, the specific questions Paul will address in our text involve Christians who are single and the subset of Christians who are single but engaged. He had earlier established that believers should remain in the marital state in which they were called. So is that what Octavia and Adriana did? Did they read 1 Corinthians 7 and say we should just stay engaged? So the questions here are, Can or should the singles pursue engagement? And can or should the engaged pursue marriage? Now, we're going to get Paul's insightful answers. I'm guessing that none of us are too stressed about this issue. Uh, We've probably resolved this. But there is something else I want us to notice as we work through these verses that will uh, make them a little bit more meaningful to us. Paul makes a few unusual comments about himself. In verse 25, for example, he says, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. And then down in verse 40, he says, this is according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. One commentator put it this way. He said, the ultimate appeal is to Christ's mercies, not to his commands. Within this framework, Paul will give his own judgment, which has as its aim not their obedience, but their own good. So in other words, there isn't any command about these questions. There's no rules. And so Paul was giving what we today might call counsel. And so we're going to be able to think about this from the point of view of giving and receiving counsel. And one thing that I want to bring out If you give advice in an area where there is no commandment, be certain that your judgment is filled with Jesus's mercy, not your opinions or anything like legalism. So let's get into it. I'll organize my comments around the following two points. Number one, your judgment to Christian singles needs to be full of mercy. And number two, your judgment to Christian couples needs to be full of mercy. So let's look at Christian singles first in verses 25 through 35. 
If you're old enough, you remember exactly where you were when you heard that John Kennedy had been assassinated. Unless you are very young, the terror attack on 9-11 is another day of infamy that you vividly recall. If you were saved after the age of accountability, you probably remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when you confessed your sin and repented and received Jesus as your savior. It was quite a monumental event, uh, receiving God the Holy Spirit as uh, your companion and your comforter on board. You also remember what state you were in when you received the Lord. Specifically, you remember your marital status. You may have been married to a believer. You may have been married to a non-believer. You may have been single. You may have been engaged. Some of those in Corinth were teaching that marriage was wrong and celibacy was holy. And so what were you to do? Were you to follow that teaching? Uh, since there was no command from the Lord, what were you to do? Well, so Paul's going to give his advice, verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give uh, judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. By virgins, he means single Christian women. Obviously, his advice to them is going to profoundly affect single Christian men. And so he's talking to both groups. The Lord had not taught on this subject. Paul was giving judgment. He was applying biblical wisdom. He doesn't even say, I'm laying down the law as an apostle. He says, I'm going to give my judgment based on biblical wisdom. Here's the way to think about this is what he's saying. The mention of mercy is something that we want to underline. It was Paul's way of saying that his advice was full of sympathy and understanding. It was caring and loving and came from someone who was made trustworthy to give counsel. And so first of all, I would suggest if you're going to want counsel, think about who is trustworthy to give it. Uh, it doesn't have to be the pastor. It can be uh, you know, any Christian, uh, but are they trustworthy in the sense uh, you know, of, of really representing Christ to you, because that's what you want, especially in an area where there's no command. I mean, if there's a commandment in the scripture, you already know what to do, and so you should only be seeking counsel in areas where you're not quite sure what to do because it's not directly spoken to. And so find somebody trustworthy. Biblical counsel can seem harsh at times, and so we want to be careful if we're going to apply it uh, to apply it with mercy. It doesn't mean it changes the meaning of it. I mean, it's true. What's true is true, but it, it shouldn't seem harsh. It should seem merciful. Biblical counsel can be delivered harshly. Sometimes, um, you know, some people have a different personality. They're more direct or less direct, but there can be a harshness to it. And worldly counsel can masquerade as biblical counsel and not only be harsh, but actually be harmful as people are drawing from the world rather than drawing from the scriptures. Don't be in a rush to give advice. I know it sounds strange to say that, but don't be in a rush to give advice. Think about what you want to say. Don't be in a rush to receive advice for that matter. Uh, you're looking for advice, you're looking for counsel, you want some uh, direction, but think about whatever people say to you. And, and, and Check it according to the scriptures. Go to the scripture for yourself and see if it makes sense. The truth is, a believer is their own best counselor if they are submitted to the Lord and will humble themselves to hear and heed his voice. 
A lot of times in marriage counseling over the years, and no one's ever taken me up on this, and, and I'm glad. Couples will be having a problem or problems, and they want counsel. And I'll listen sometimes for hours, and I say, look, the only way I could really decide this is if I lived for you for about three months, lived with you for about three months. And uh, then I could see these interactions that you're talking about. Well, I don't want to live with them, and they don't want me to live with them, but, but I think you get the understanding. How much can somebody know? Let's say you go to therapy. Maybe people here go to therapy, or you know, you've been to therapy, or the idea of therapy. You talk to somebody for an hour. It's like a, they punch the clock. You talk to them. It's valuable. It's wonderful. How much can they really know you or know about you in that hour? First of all, you, we all lie about ourselves in the sense that maybe we don't tell the whole truth, uh, or we actually lie. And because we think they need to hear certain things and they're listening for other things. But you could go to somebody for years and them not really know anything more about you than the first time they ever met you. And so you have all the knowledge of what's going on in your life. You're the one walking with the Lord, with the onboard Holy Spirit. You just need to be pointed in different directions that are biblical. And, and, and really, you... you are the only one who can evaluate counseling to see if it's really for you. We're not against meeting with people. We, we would rather call it discipleship than counseling. Uh, but it's, uh, I, I think we borrow this idea from the world that I need to get together with somebody for an hour a week and go over my problems. Uh, and, and that's not usually true. Usually you can get right to the heart of it and get right to the scriptures uh, but if it's something deeper, um, even then it's up to you to figure it out in a sense because only you know all the facts. So I suppose he says, therefore it's good because of the present distress, good for a man to remain as he is. If you read the account of Paul's time in Corinth in the book of Acts, you'll see that political and physical persecution had broken out against the believers. If you read history, you see that within a few years, the official state persecution would break out against the church under the Caesar who was Nero at the time. And in light of the present distress, they needed to think soberly about their immediate future on the earth. Now, we're not in a state of severe persecution, not yet anyway, but the time is always short for us because we're looking up for the Lord, and so we must carefully weigh out our life's decisions. I mean, if I really believe that the Lord could come at any moment uh, to rapture the church, it should have an effect on my daily decision-making. It doesn't mean I go to the store every day thinking, you know, just, just buy enough groceries for each day. By the way, if I recall right, a few years ago, there was a guy going around um, after C.S. Lewis died, and he, he was uh, his former secretary, one of his former secretaries, a male secretary, and he talked about the life of C.S. Lewis. And one of his previous secretaries only bought enough provision for each day. And it used to drive Lewis crazy because he'd go, maybe if you want an extra cup of tea, there wouldn't be any sugar for it. Uh, and, and so they, they had this battle going on because this guy was convinced the Lord could come at any minute. And so why buy more tea and sugar than you actually need for the day? So, the, but you know, the idea is we should, uh, it should have an effect on our lives and our planning. And so then in verse 27, he says, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Don't seek a wife. Now, it's important we read this accurately. 
You've probably noticed that I quote Gordon Fee almost every week. He's a great guy. He's a scholar who knows the original languages. He's a noted Bible translator. He's a solid, charismatic commentator. Here is his take on verse 27 from both the original Greek language and the historical context. Both questions speak directly to the present situation. The clue lies with the word loosed, which is found throughout the papyri as a technical term for discharging someone from the obligations of a contract. If it means that here, then he is speaking to the betrothed. Are you bound, that is, engaged and under obligation to marry a woman, then do not seek to break off that obligation? And the second question would then expand the point to include all singles. Are you free from an engagement? Do not seek an engagement. So the idea here is he's talking to engaged couples or couples that are not yet engaged about engagement, not marriage. Well, he goes on to say in verse 28, even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, you will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Some in Corinth, as you know, were promoting the idea that you were more spiritual if you remained single and celibate. While we don't usually say that, we sort of think that sometimes, or at least other people in world religions think that because they uh, order their priests and their uh, top officials to be celibate. Uh, and, so, and the idea is that it must be more spiritual to remain celibate. And so that was the same thing that's going on here in the first century uh, among some of them. Paul had already told them that was not true. Nothing unspiritual or sinful about getting married. You were and you are free to make the decision whether or not to marry. And so again, we're looking at an area here where there's no command. There's no commandment that you have to get married. There's no commandment that you can't stay single or that you have to stay single or, or you know, that you must marry. It's, it's up to you. And so you have to apply biblical wisdom. Paul himself was unmarried and said that at least at this time in his life, he had the gift of celibacy. Think how easy it would have been for him to overemphasize singleness and celibacy. He could have just said, hey, you should be single like me and serve the Lord. And he, it, I mean, he actually preferred that. I mean, he let his feelings be known, but he was balanced in his counsel. He said, that's how I feel about this. That's my advice to you, but there's no commandment to do that. And so his, his counsel was merciful and full of freedom. We tend to project our own spiritual lives onto others and think that if what I'm doing is spiritual for me, it must be spiritual for you. And so this is what you ought to do. And, and that's kind of the heart of what we're talking about here. We need to be careful when we're in areas that don't have clear commandments. We need to let people know that, hey, this is my judgment, and I have this trustworthiness and this track record to go on. Uh, many times in counseling married couples, when people will disagree, I'll say, well, maybe that'll work for you, but I've been married 43 years, and I'm telling you what works for me. And they'll think, oh, we've been married six months, so maybe, maybe you're more trustworthy to listen to. And then, of course, you want to stay biblical, obviously, and not give opinions. In Corinth, as a Christian, life was hard, and it was about to get much worse. He talks about trouble in this life, and that's how verse 28 should read. 
it's not referring to our flesh, not trouble in the flesh as if we will be bound up with lust and need to get married. It means that we're going to have trouble in life outwardly because of the persecution that's coming. And so this is merciful pastoral counsel. It's not a command. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. The specific counsel Paul gave needs to be understood in a context that the present life and all its institutions, including marriage, are passing away. We are eternal. We look forward to eternity. We should live in the present from a future worldview. If you knew that tomorrow would be day one of the zombie apocalypse, that World War Z would be uh, called, you would read these next three verses without too much question. Verse 29, but this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. Marriage, mourning, merriment, materialism, every aspect of their lives in Corinth was going to be affected by the trouble that was coming and that was increasing. And so we read this and think, well, what does all that mean? It, it, it doesn't mean as much to us as it, now as it would if we were in a persecuted nation where families were being destroyed and people were being killed and things like that. Then we would understand, hey, life is not normal and we can't assume that it's going to be. And so we have to make our decisions with that in mind. We don't know if trouble is coming upon us here in the greatest nation on earth. As citizens of heaven, we know that this world is passing away and every area of our lives must be affected by the joy of our salvation and the hope of our glorification. But we're not at this extreme kind of a situation where you could really say you need to act like you're not really married. Um, in fact, we do the opposite. Jesus once told a parable in which the excuse of one man why he could not accept Christ's invitation, he said, I've married a wife. In other words, I, my, my marriage and my family comes before my relationship to the Lord. And, you know, marriage and family is no excuse to quit serving the Lord. I've seen too many couples who try to save their marriages by drawing back from church and fellowship. It makes logical sense. We're having trouble in our marriage. Our family is not where I want it to be. We need to spend more time together. Where are we going to get that time? We'll get it on Sunday by not going to church anymore because that is not really a high priority. It's not as high as camping. Uh, which I don't have anything against camping. Actually, I do. Not philosophically, just personally. I am never, unless it is the zombie apocalypse, I am not going to live in a tent ever. But, uh, or, you know, actually, I do, I take that back. I do tent camp with my grandchildren in the living room. Well, um, by that, I mean they sleep in the tent and I sleep in my bed. But anyway, uh, I don't think I could get up from the ground anymore, to tell you the truth. But, yeah, shake your head, I know, yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, that's the idea. You, you just, you, you, why cut out church? I'm doing some research for a project with the Lamar Police Department, and I ran across some interesting articles. This isn't the reason to go to church, but they have done research, and by they, I mean universities, not, not just Christians. It's not you know, the Gallup polls and things like that. They've researched it, and they found that your children, if they go to church regularly, if you try and do weekly attendance and they go to church regularly, it can add as much as statistically eight years to their lives. Adults, it can add two to three years to your life. Lower your blood pressure. I mean, there's a ton of physical effects. So if I said to a person, hey, how would you like your kids to live eight more years? Yeah, sign me up. Go to church. Oh, no. Are you kidding me? 
That's not for me. And, and so, but that's true. And so don't, you know, don't use marriage as an excuse. It, it says here, you no longer weep as others weep. Whatever pain comes your way is to be understood in light of eternity. We are to sorrow as the, but not as those who haven't hope. One of my pet peeves over the years, and I've done a ton of, I've officiated at a ton of funerals and, and I've been blessed to do it. A lot of them believers who've gone to be with the Lord and will get up and say, now, so-and-so wanted their service to be a rejoicing, a celebration of life. And so they've picked out some songs that are worship songs, and we want to really worship the Lord just as if we were at church. We've got the words there, and we've got the worship going on, so let's do it. And then we get started, and everybody sings like this. Maybe I better not sing. Because there's a, just some kind of a cultural pressure not to enjoy a memorial. And, and really, we need to break out of that. We, we need to rejoice. Yes, there's sorrow, but that person is absent from the body and present with the Lord. It, to live is Christ. To die is what? Gain. So let's ex- be excited about that. And, and so let's, you know, let's change the way we mourn. The form of this world is passing away. Life as we know it is going to end. We are spiritual beings and should treat everything in the world accordingly. Those who use the world not as misusing it has to do with just how immersed in the world I am compared to my commitments to the Lord. What do people think about when they think about me? Well, coffee, of course, but you know I'm just playing around with that stuff. Hopefully people think about Jesus when they think of us. Those who buy as though they did not possess tackles the whole subject of materialism, which is a constant struggle for Christians who are in the world, but not of it. So verse 32, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. He who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be both holy in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Obviously, if you get married, it adds additional cares to your life. That kind of emotional attachment can be exploited by persecutors. Paul would know because he had terrorized families before getting saved. He was the chief persecutor of the church. Counsel from Paul, who had been on both sides of persecution, should be heard and heeded. He says, this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. I like that. Paul wasn't trying to tie them down or put a leash on them, lead them in one way or the other. He didn't say you must break your engagement and remain single. He didn't say you must get married. It was up to you to decide. And he wanted you to decide with the mindset that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Any judgments you make, any advice you give should emphasize mercy. As I said, people are their own best counselor, helped by Jesus, the wonderful counselor, and by the indwelling Holy Spirit, who's called the comforter. He's the spirit of wisdom. We need to point people in the right direction and let them counsel themselves. And we need to believe that we just need to be pointed back in the right direction and counsel ourselves. Your judgment to Christian couples needs to be full of mercy. Let's start with the right translation of verses 36, 7, and 8 should read like this. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. 
they should get married. But the man who has settled this matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, he who does not marry her does even better. These verses are sometimes read as applying to fathers and daughters, and that way they become very confusing. But they're not about fathers and daughters, they are about engaged couples. Uh, Just real quick, one reason they're not about fathers and daughters is because most of these people were Gentiles and they didn't follow the Jewish wedding customs of having arranged marriages. And so it, it doesn't fit contextually for them to be talking about fathers here. Men and women who are engaged were the subject. It's written from the man's point of view because he was the one who would take the initiative once a decision to marry or not marry was reached. To the engaged, Paul said, break it off if you want to, or get married if you want to. Neither one is more spiritual, but singleness may be better in light of the trouble that was only going to increase. A woman is bound, verse 39, to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Biological man, biological woman, heterosexuals, monogamous, till death do they part, If death departs them and you either are not gifted with celibacy or you want companionship, marry a believer. And as I've said a few times to your chuckling, a believer with a good record of obedience to Jesus, check up on them. So, you know, you're dating somebody. Yeah, I'm a Christian. You're thinking about marriage. um, Or maybe here's the problem. You're not thinking about marriage, but you will be a little while down the road. So while you still have a clear head, find out, I mean, I know maybe it sounds weird to you, but find out what kind of a Christian they really are. So let's say you're a gal. You want to get remarried. You find a guy to date. He says, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to this church. Call that church. Call the pastor. Or have a friend of yours call that church and say, hey, I need to talk to the pastor. My friend is engaged to be married to Gene. What kind of a Christian is Gene? Well, if you promise not to repeat this, I'll tell you he's a deadbeat. He's under church discipline. Uh, I wouldn't let my daughter marry him. Those kinds of things. Or, hey, praise the Lord. Great guy, servant of the Lord, you know, has a backstory, those kinds of things. Why not? Why, Why get married in the dark? I mean, they do background checks on you for everything, right? Records checks. Do a spiritual record check on your, on the person that you're dating. And so, uh, you know, do it. I keep, I'm going to keep telling you until somebody finally calls me. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Paul says, give remaining single a serious chance. Paul said you might find it happier. That's the idea, you know, people who find themselves single, we think, oh, we want you to be happy. And so find somebody to marry. Okay, maybe you'd be happier not being married. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. You have to be balanced about this. We have, I think, maybe, maybe you don't, maybe it's just me. We have a prejudice about singleness. We still think in our society that being single is something weird. I mean, let's face it. If I introduce somebody to you and, and, and I say, you know, hey, this is uh, so-and-so, they're 55 years old and they've never been married. Oh, well, ooh, okay. No problem there. 
It sounds a little odd. I'm so hoping there's nobody here who's 55. And <laughs> I apologize. But no, I think it's true. I think we pray, and in churches even more, it's like, oh, you need to get married. You need to get married. You need to get married. Why? Because you, I got married. I couldn't handle being single. You might actually be happier being single. I know people who are happier being single. And, and so I'm not, you know, I'm not promoting one over the other. When you counsel people, you need to be like Paul and say, hey, you might actually be happier being single. But if you're not, you're free and encouraged to remarry a believer who is likewise no longer bound to a previous marriage. Now, this last sentence may be taken in one of two ways. It's possible that this is a jab at the Corinthians who thought themselves superior to Paul in their wisdom. They thought they had the spirit. And he said, you know what, guys, I have the spirit also. Or it may simply be a strengthening of his opinion that he not simply is relying on his own wisdom, but he's seeking the Holy Spirit who's probably giving him a word of wisdom. And so Paul effectively cuts the baby in half. He lays down wisdom that is pure and peaceable, most of all merciful. We should always, always strive to do the same. The time is short, he said. Here are a few other ways of translating that phrase. The appointed time has grown short. The strategic epical period of time has been shortened. The interval has been shortened. The era is limited. Or as Dr. Stephen Strange said, we're in the end game now. After the ascension of Jesus, the church received the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. On that day of Pentecost, Peter made it clear that we were in the last days. We were in God's end game looking forward to the book of Revelation. You say, really? Even though it's been nearly 20 centuries? Remember what Peter counseled those who thought the Lord was delaying his coming for us. Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. It isn't meant to be a formula for converting earthly years into heavenly ones. Do you have those charts on your refrigerator? How to go from metric to, you know, standard or how many ounces in a gram and stuff like that. It's, I do. I have several of them. I'm terrible with math. Still, I think it's okay to say that the 1986 years or so from that day of Pentecost until right now are less than two days by a heavenly reckoning. The relationship of Jesus to those he has saved is often compared to a wedding wherein he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. Apostle Paul wrote, I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Jesus. He also compared the gift of the Holy Spirit that we received as an engagement ring in Ephesians chapter one. And when we return with Jesus at the second coming, an angel says, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. It can seem like the world record for the longest engagement, especially when you're the one who becomes aware of stress and suffering of others, or you yourself are hit with tragedy. When you do remember this, it might be today we look into his eyes, might be today we see his face, might be today he places his wounded hand on our tear-stained face. Let's pray.